Volume One, Chapter Nine of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Willits. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume One, Chapter Nine. Thus sad and disarranged were the thoughts of my poor sister when she became assured of the infidelity of Raymond. All her virtues and all her defects tended to make the blow incurable. Her affection for me, her brother, for Adrian and Idris, was subject, as it were, to the reigning passion of her heart. Even her maternal tenderness borrowed half its force from the delight she had in tracing Raymond's features and expression in the infant's countenance. She had been reserved and even stern in childhood, but love had softened the asperities of her character, and her union with Raymond had caused her talents and affections to unfold themselves. The one betrayed, and the other lost, she in some degree returned to her ancient disposition. The concentrated pride of her nature, forgotten during her blissful dream, awoke, and with its adder's sting pierced her heart. Her humility of spirit augmented the power of the venom. She had been exalted in her own estimation, while distinguished by his love. Of what worth was she, now that he thrust her from this preferment? She had been proud of having won and preserved him, but another had won him from her, and her exultation was as cold as a water-quenched ember. We, in our retirement, remained long in ignorance of her misfortune. Soon after the festival she had sent for her child, and then she seemed to have forgotten us. Adrian observed a change during a visit that he afterward paid them, but he could not tell its extent or divine the cause. They still appeared in public together, and lived under the same roof. Raymond was, as usual, courteous, though there was, on occasions, an unbidden haughtiness or painful abruptness in his manners which startled his gentle friend. His brow was not clouded, but disdain sat on his lips, and his voice was harsh. Perdita was all kindness and attention to her lord, but she was silent, and beyond words sad. She had grown thin and pale, and her eyes often filled with tears. Sometimes she looked at Raymond, as if to say, That it should be so. At others, her countenance expressed, I will still do all I can to make you happy. But Adrian read with uncertain aim the charactery of her face, and might mistake. Clara was always with her, and she seemed most at ease when, in an obscure corner, she could sit holding her child's hand, silent and lonely. Still Adrian was unable to guess the truth. He entreated them to visit us at Windsor, and they promised to come during the following month. It was May before they arrived. The season had decked the forest trees with leaves, and its path with a thousand flowers. We had notice of their intention the day before, and early in the morning Perdita arrived with her daughter. Raymond would follow soon, she said. He had been detained by business. According to Adrian's account, I had expected to find her sad, but on the contrary she seemed in the highest spirits. True, she had grown thin. Her eyes were somewhat hollow, and her cheeks sunk, though tinged by a bright glow. She was delighted to see us, caressed our children, 
praised their growth and development. Clara also was pleased to meet again her young friend Alfred. All kinds of childish games were entered into, in which Perdita joined. She communicated her gaiety to us, and as we amused ourselves on the castle terrace, it appeared that a happier, less careworn party could not have been assembled. "'This is better, Mamma," said Clara, "'than being in that dismal London, where you often cry, and never laugh as you do now.' "'Silence, little foolish thing,' replied her mother, "'and remember any one that mentions London is sent to Coventry for an hour.' Soon after, Raymond arrived. He did not join as usual in the playful spirit of the rest, but, entering into conversation with Adrian and myself, by degrees we succeeded from our companions, and Idris and Perdita only remained with the children. Raymond talked of his new buildings, of his plan for an establishment for the better education of the poor. As usual, Adrian and he entered into argument, and the time slipped away unperceived. We assembled again towards evening, and Perdita insisted on our having recourse to music. She wanted, she said, to give us a specimen of her new accomplishment, for since she had been in London she had applied herself to music, and sang, without much power, but with a great deal of sweetness. We were not permitted by her to select any but light-hearted melodies, and all the operas of Mozart were called into service, that we might choose the most exhilarating of his airs. Among the other transcendent attributes of Mozart's music, it possesses more than any other that of appearing to come from the heart. You enter into the passions expressed by him, and are transported with grief, joy, anger, or confusion, as he, our soul's master, chooses to inspire. For some time the spirity of hilarity was kept up, but at length Perdita receded from the piano, for Raymond had joined in the trio of Tassi Ingiusticore in Don Giovanni, whose arch entreaty was softened by him into tenderness, and thrilled her heart with memories of the changed past. It was the same voice, the same tone, the self-same sounds and words which often before she had received, as the homage of love to her, no longer was it that, and this concord of sound with its dissonance of expression penetrated her with regret and despair. Soon after Idris, who was at the harp, turned to that passionate and sorrowful air in Figaro, Porgi Amor Qualcheris Foro, in which the deserted countess laments the change of the faithless Alma Viva. The sound of tender sorrow is breathed forth in this strain, and the sweet voice of Idris, sustained by the mournful chords of her instrument, added to the expression of the words. During the pathetic appeal with which it concludes, a stifled sob attracted our attention to Perdita. The cessation of the music recalled her to herself. She hastened out of the hall. I followed her. At first she seemed to wish to shun me, and then, yielding to my earnest questioning, she threw herself on my neck and wept aloud. Once more, she cried, once more on your friendly breast, my beloved brother, can the lost Perdita pour forth her sorrows? I had imposed a law of silence on myself, and for months I have kept it. I do wrong in weeping now, and greater wrong in giving words to my grief. I will not speak. Be it enough for you to know that I am miserable. Be it enough for you to know that the painted veil of life is rent, 
that I sit forever shrouded in darkness and gloom, that grief is my sister, everlasting lamentation my mate. I endeavoured to console her. I did not question her, but I caressed her, assured her of my deepest affection and my intense interest in the changes of her fortune. Dear words, she cried, expressions of love come upon my ear, like the remembered sounds of forgotten music that had been dear to me. They are vain, I know, how very vain in their attempt to soothe or comfort me. Dearest Lionel, you cannot guess what I have suffered during these long months. I have read of mourners in ancient days, who clothed themselves in sackcloth, scattered dust upon their heads, ate their bread mingled with ashes, and took up their abode on the bleak mountain tops, reproaching heaven and earth aloud with their misfortunes. Why, this is the very luxury of sorrow. Thus one might go from day to day, contriving new extravagances, revelling in the paraphernalia of woe, wedded to all the appurtenances of despair. Alas, I must for ever conceal the wretchedness that consumes me. I must weave a veil of dazzling falsehood to hide my grief from vulgar eyes, smooth my brow, and paint my lips in deceitful smiles. Even in solitude I dare not think how lost I am, lest I become insane and rave. The tears and agitation of my poor sister had rendered her unfit to return to the circle we had left, so I persuaded her to let me drive her through the park, and, during the ride, I induced her to confide the tale of her unhappiness to me, fancying that talking of it would lighten the burthen, and certain that, if there were a remedy, it should be found and secured to her. Several weeks had elapsed since the festival of the anniversary, and she had been unable to calm her mind, or to subdue her thoughts to any regular train. Sometimes she reproached herself for taking too bitterly to heart that which many would esteem an imaginary evil. But this was no subject for reason, and, ignorant as she was of the motives and true conduct of Raymond, things assumed for her even a worse appearance than the reality warranted. He was seldom at the palace. Never, but when he was assured that his public duties would prevent his remaining alone with Perdita, they seldom addressed each other, shunning explanation, each fearing any communication the other might make. Suddenly, however, the manners of Raymond changed. He appeared to design to find opportunities of bringing about a return to kindness and intimacy with my sister. The tide of love towards her appeared to flow again. He could never forget how once he had been devoted to her, making her the shrine and storehouse wherein to place every thought and every sentiment. Shame seemed to hold him back, yet he evidently wished to establish a renewal of confidence and affection. From the moment Perdita had sufficiently recovered herself to form any plan of action, she had laid one down, which she now prepared to follow. She received these tokens of returning love with gentleness. She did not shun his company, but she endeavoured to place a barrier in the way of familiar intercourse or painful discussion, which mingled pride and shame prevented Raymond from surmounting. He began at last to shew signs of angry impatience, and Perdita became aware that the system she had adopted could not continue. She must explain herself to him. She could not summon courage to speak. She wrote thus. 
Read this letter with patience, I entreat you. It will contain no reproaches. Reproach is indeed an idle word, for what should I reproach you? Allow me in some degree to explain my feeling. Without that we shall both grope in the dark, mistaking one another, erring from the path which may conduct, one of us at least, to a more eligible mode of life than that led by either during the last few weeks. I loved you, I love you. Neither anger nor pride dictates these lines, but a feeling beyond, deeper, and more unalterable than either. My affections are wounded, it is impossible to heal them. Cease then the vain endeavour, if indeed that way your endeavours tend. Forgiveness, return, idle words are these. I forgive the pain I endure, but the trodden path cannot be retraced. Common affection might have been satisfied with common usages. I believed that you read my heart and knew its devotion, its unalienable fidelity towards you. I never loved any but you. You came the embodied image of my fondest dreams. The praise of men, power and high aspirations attended your career. Love for you invested the world for me in enchanted light. It was no longer the earth I trod, the earth, common mother, yielding only trite and stale repetition of objects and circumstances old and worn out. I lived in a temple glorified by intensest sense of devotion and rapture. I walked, a consecrated being, contemplating only your power, your excellence. For, oh, you stood beside me, like my youth, transformed for me the real to a dream clothing the palpable and familiar with golden exhalations of the dawn. The bloom has vanished from my life. There is no morning to this all-investing night, no rising to the set sun of love. In those days the rest of the world was nothing to me. All other men I never considered nor felt what they were, nor did I look on you as one of them. Separated from them, Exalted in my heart, sole possessor of my affections, single object of my hopes, the best half of myself. Ah, Raymond, were we not happy? Did the sun shine on any who could enjoy its light with purer and more intense bliss? It was not, it is not, a common infidelity at which I repine. It is the disunion of an whole which may not have part it is the carelessness with which you have shaken off the mantle of election with which to me you are invested, and have become one among the many. Dream not to alter this. Is not love a divinity, because it is immortal? Did not I appear sanctified, even to myself, because this love had for its temple my heart? I have gazed on you as you slept, melted even to tears, as the idea filled my mind, that all I possessed lay cradled in those idolized but mortal lineaments before me. Yet even then I have checked thick-coming fears with one thought. I would not fear death, for the emotions that linked us must be immortal. And now I do not fear death. I should be well pleased to close my eyes, never more to open them again. And yet I fear it, even as I fear all things, 
for in any state of being linked by the chain of memory with this, happiness would not return. Even in paradise, I must feel that your love was less enduring than the mortal beatings of my fragile heart, every pulse of which knells audibly. The funeral note of love, deep buried without resurrection. No, no, me miserable, for love extinct there is no resurrection. Yet I love you. Yet, and for ever, would I contribute all I possess to your welfare, on account of a tattling world. For the sake of my, of our child, I would remain by you, Raymond, share your fortunes, partake your counsel. Shall it be thus? We are no longer lovers, nor can I call myself a friend to any, since, lost as I am, I have no thought to spare from my own wretched, engrossing self. But it will please me to see you each day, to listen to the public voice praising you, to keep up your maternal love for our girl, to hear your voice, to know that I am near you, though you are no longer mine. If you wish to break the chains that bind us, say the word, and it shall be done. I will take all the blame on myself, of harshness or unkindness, in the world's eye. Yet, as I have said, I should be best pleased, at least for the present, to live under the same roof with you. When the fever of my young life is spent, when placid age shall tame the vulture that devours me, friendship may come, love and hope being dead. May this be true? Can my soul, inextricably linked to this perishable frame, become lethargic and cold, even as this sensitive mechanism shall use its youthful elasticity. Then, with lacklustre eyes, grey hairs, and wrinkled brow, though now the words sound hollow and meaningless, then, tottering on the grave's extreme edge, I may be your affectionate and true friend, Perdita. Raymond's answer was brief. What indeed could he reply to her complaints, to her griefs which she jealously paled round, keeping out all thought of remedy? Notwithstanding your bitter letter, he wrote, for bitter I must call it, you are the chief person in my estimation, and it is your happiness that I would principally consult. Do that which seems best to you, and if you can receive gratification from one mode of life in preference to another, do not let me be any obstacle. I foresee that the plan which you mark out in your letter will not endure long, but you are mistress of yourself, and it is my sincere wish to contribute as far as you will permit me to your happiness. Raymond has prophesied well, said Perdita. Alas, that it should be so. Our present mode of life cannot continue long, yet I will not be the first to propose alteration. He beholds in me one whom he has injured even unto death, and I derive no hope from his kindness. No change can possibly be brought about even by his best intentions. As well might Cleopatra have worn as an ornament the vinegar which contained her dissolved pearl, as I be content with the love that Raymond can now offer me. I own that I did not see her misfortune with the same eyes as Perdita. At all events methought that the wound could be healed, and if they remained together it would be so. I endeavoured therefore to soothe and soften her mind, 
and it was not until after many endeavours that I gave up the task as impracticable. Perdita listened to me impatiently, and answered with some asperity, Do you think that any of your arguments are new to me, or that my own burning wishes and intense anguish have not suggested them all a thousand times, with far more eagerness and subtlety than you can put into them? Lionel, you cannot understand what woman's love is. In days of happiness I have often repeated to myself, with a grateful heart and exulting spirit, all that Raymond sacrificed for me. I was a poor, uneducated, unbefriended mountain girl, raised from nothingness by him. All that I possessed of the luxuries of life came from him. He gave me an illustrious name and noble station, the world's respect reflected from his own glory. All this, joined to his own undying love, inspired me with sensations towards him, akin to those with which we regard the giver of life. I gave him love only. I devoted myself to him, imperfect creature that I was. I took myself to task, that I might become worthy of him. I watched over my hasty temper, subdued my burning impatience of character, schooled my self-engrossing thoughts, educated myself to the best perfection I might attain, that the fruit of my exertions might be his happiness. I took no merit to myself for this. He deserved it all. All labour, all devotion, all sacrifice. I would have toiled a scaleless alp to pluck a flower that would please him. I was ready to quit you all, my beloved and gifted companions, and to live only with him, for him. I could not do otherwise, even if I had wished. For if we are said to have two souls, he was my better soul, to which the other was a perpetual slave. One only return did he owe me, even fidelity. I earned that, I deserved it. Because I was mountain-bred, unallied to the noble and wealthy, shall he think to repay me by an empty name and station? Let him take them back. Without his love they are nothing to me. Their only merit in my eyes was that they were his. Thus passionately Perdita ran on. When I adverted to the question of their entire separation, she replied, Be it so. One day the period will arrive. I know it and feel it. But in this I am a coward. This imperfect companionship and our masquerade of union are strangely dear to me. It is painful, I allow, destructive, impracticable. It keeps up a perpetual fever in my veins. It frets my immedicable wound. It is instinct with poison. Yet I must cling to it. Perhaps it will kill me soon, and thus perform a thankful office. In the meantime, Raymond had remained with Adrian and Idris. He was naturally frank. The continued absence of Perdita and myself became remarkable, and Raymond soon found relief from the constraint of months by an unreserved confidence with his two friends. He related to them the situation in which he had found Evadne. At first, from delicacy to Adrian, he concealed her name, but it was divulged in the course of his narrative, and her former lover heard, with the most acute agitation, the history of her sufferings. Idris had shared Perdita's ill opinion of the Greek, but Raymond's account softened and interested her. Evadne's constancy, fortitude, even her ill-fated and ill-regulated love, were matter of admiration and pity, 
especially when, from the detail of the events of the 19th of October, it was apparent that she preferred suffering and death to any in her eyes degrading application for the pity and assistance of her lover. Her subsequent conduct did not diminish this interest. At first, relieved from famine and the grave, watched over by Raymond with the tenderest assiduity, with that feeling of repose peculiar to convalescence, Evadne gave herself up to rapturous gratitude and love. But reflection returned with health. She questioned him with regard to the motives which had occasioned his critical absence. She framed her inquiries with Greek subtlety. She formed her conclusions with the decision and firmness peculiar to her disposition. She could not divine that the breach which she had occasioned between Raymond and Perdita was already irreparable. But she knew that under the present system it would be widened each day, and that its result must be to destroy her lover's happiness and to implant the fangs of remorse in his heart. From the moment that she perceived the right line of conduct, she resolved to adopt it, and to part from Raymond forever. Conflicting passions, long-cherished love, and self-inflicted disappointment made her regard death alone as sufficient refuge for her woe. But the same feelings and opinions which had before restrained her acted with redoubled force for she knew that the reflection that he had occasioned her death would pursue Raymond through life, poisoning every enjoyment, clouding every prospect. Besides, though the violence of her anguish made life hateful, it had not yet produced that monotonous, lethargic sense of changeless misery which for the most part produces suicide. Her energy of character induced her still to combat with the ills of life, even those attendant on hopeless love presented themselves, rather in the shape of an adversary to be overcome, than of a victor to whom she must submit. Besides, she had memories of past tenderness to cherish, smiles, words, and even tears to con over, which, though remembered in desertion and sorrow, were to be preferred to the forgetfulness of the grave. It was impossible to guess at the whole of her plan, her letter to Raymond gave no clue for discovery. It assured him that she was in no danger of wanting the means of life. She promised in it to preserve herself, and some future day, perhaps, to present herself to him in a station not unworthy of her. She then bade him, with the eloquence of despair and of unalterable love, a last farewell. All these circumstances were now related to Adrian and Idris, Raymond then lamented the cureless evil of his situation with Perdita. He declared, notwithstanding her harshness, he even called it coldness, that he loved her. He had been ready once with the humility of a penitent, and the duty of a vassal, to surrender himself to her, giving up his very soul to her tutelage, to become her pupil, her slave, her bondsman. She had rejected these advances, and the time for such exuberant submission, which must be founded on love and nourished by it, was now past. Still all his wishes and endeavours were directed towards her peace, and his chief discomfort arose from the perception that he exerted himself in vain. If she were to continue inflexible in the line of conduct she now pursued, they must part. 
The combinations and occurrences of this senseless mode of intercourse were maddening to him. Yet he would not propose the separation. He was haunted by the fear of causing the death of one or other of the beings implicated in these events, and he could not persuade himself to undertake to direct the course of events, lest, ignorant of the land he traversed, he should lead those attached to the car into irremediable ruin. After a discussion on this subject, which lasted for several hours, he took leave of his friends and returned to town, unwilling to meet Perdita before us, conscious, as we all must be, of the thoughts uppermost in the minds of both. Perdita prepared to follow him with her child. Idris endeavoured to persuade her to remain. My poor sister looked at the counsellor with affright. She knew that Raymond had conversed with her. Had he instigated this request? Was this to be the prelude to their eternal separation? I have said that the defects of her character awoke and acquired vigour from her unnatural position. She regarded with suspicion the invitation of Idris. She embraced me as if she were about to be deprived of my affection also, calling me more than her brother, her only friend, her last hope. She pathetically conjured me not to cease to love her, and with increased anxiety she departed for London, the scene and cause of all her misery. The scenes that followed convinced her that she had not yet fathomed the obscure gulf into which she had plunged. Her unhappiness assumed every day a new shape. Every day some unexpected event seemed to close, while in fact it led onward, the train of calamities which now befell her. The selected passion of the soul of Raymond was ambition. Readiness of talent, a capacity of entering into and leading the dispositions of men, earnest desire of distinction were the awakeners and nurses of his ambition. But other ingredients mingled with these, and prevented him from becoming the calculating, determined character, which alone forms a successful hero. He was obstinate, but not firm, benevolent in his first movements, harsh and reckless when provoked. Above all, he was remorseless and unyielding in the pursuit of any object of desire, however lawless. Love of pleasure, and the softer sensibilities of our nature, made a prominent part of his character, conquering the conqueror, holding him in at the moment of acquisition, sweeping away ambition's web, making him forget the toil of weeks, for the sake of one moment's indulgence, of the new and actual object of his wishes. Obeying these impulses, he had become the husband of Perdita. Egged on by them, he found himself the lover of Evadne. He had now lost both. He had neither the ennobling self-gratulation which constancy inspires to console him, nor the voluptuous sense of abandonment to a forbidden but intoxicating passion. His heart was exhausted by the recent events. His enjoyment of life was destroyed by the resentment of Perdita and the flight of Evadne, and the inflexibility of the former set the last seal upon the annihilation of his hopes. As long as their disunion remained a secret, he cherished an expectation of reawakening past tenderness in her bosom, now that we were all made acquainted with these occurrences, and that Perdita, by declaring her resolves to others, in a manner pledged herself to their accomplishment. He gave up the idea of reunion as futile, and sought only, since he was unable to influence her to change, to reconcile himself to the present state of things.
He made a vow against love and its train of struggles, disappointment and remorse, and sought in mere sensual enjoyment a remedy for the injurious inroads of passion. Debasement of character is the certain follower of such pursuits. Yet this consequence would not have been immediately remarkable if Raymond had continued to apply himself to the execution of his plans for the public benefit and the fulfilling his duties as protector. But, extreme in all things, given up to immediate impressions, he entered with ardour into this new pursuit of pleasure, and followed up the incongruous intimacies occasioned by it without reflection or foresight. The council chamber was deserted. The crowds which attended on him as agents to his various projects were neglected. Festivity, and even libertinism, became the order of the day. Perdita beheld with affright the increasing disorder. For a moment she thought that she could stem the torrent, and that Raymond could be induced to hear reason from her. Vain hope! The moment of her influence was past. He listened with haughtiness, replied disdainfully, and, if in truth she succeeded in awakening his conscience, the sole effect was that he sought an opiate for the pang in oblivious riot. With the energy natural to her, Perdita then endeavoured to supply his place. Their still apparent union permitted her to do much, but no woman could, in the end, present a remedy to the increasing negligence of the protector, who, as if seized with a paroxysm of insanity, trampled on all ceremony, all order, all duty, and gave himself up to license. Reports of these strange proceedings reached us, and we were undecided what method to adopt to restore our friend to himself and his country, when Perdita suddenly appeared among us. She detailed the progress of the mournful change, and entreated Adrian and myself to go up to London, and endeavour to remedy the increasing evil. "'Tell him,' she cried, "'tell Lord Raymond that my presence shall no longer annoy him, that he need not plunge into this destructive dissipation for the sake of disgusting me and causing me to fly.' This purpose is now accomplished. He will never see me more. But let me, it is my last entreaty, let me in the praises of his countrymen and the prosperity of England find the choice of my youth justified. During our ride up to town, Adrian and I discussed and argued upon Raymond's conduct and his falling off from the hopes of permanent excellence on his part, which he had before given us cause to entertain. My friend and I had both been educated in one school, or rather, I was his pupil in the opinion that steady adherence to principle was the only road to honour, a ceaseless observance of the laws of general utility the only conscientious aim of human ambition. But though we both entertained these ideas, we differed in their application. Resentment added also a sting to my censure, and I reprobated Raymond's conduct in severe terms. Adrian was more benign, more considerate. He admitted that the principles that I laid down were the best, but he denied that they were the only ones. Quoting the text, there are many mansions in my father's house, he insisted that the modes of becoming good or great varied as much as the dispositions of men, of whom it might be said, as of the leaves of the forest, there were no two alike. We arrived in London at about eleven at night. We conjectured, notwithstanding what we had heard, that we should find Raymond in St. Stephen's, thither we sped. The chamber was full, but there was no protector, and there was an austere discontent manifest 
on the countenances of the leaders, and a whispering and busy tattle among the underlings, not less ominous. We hastened to the palace of the protectorate. We found Raymond in his dining-room with six others. The bottle was being pushed around merrily, and had made considerable inroads on the understanding of one or two. He who sat near Raymond was telling a story which convulsed the rest with laughter. Raymond sat among them, though while he entered into the spirit of the hour, his natural dignity never forsook him. He was gay, playful, fascinating, but never did he overstep the modesty of nature, or the respect due to himself, in his wildest sallies. Yet I own, that considering the task which Raymond had taken on himself as protector of England, and the cares to which it became him to attend, I was exceedingly provoked to observe the worthless fellows on whom his time was wasted, and the jovial, if not drunken, spirit which seemed on the point of robbing him of his better self. I stood watching the scene, while Adrian flitted like a shadow in among them, and, by a word and look of sobriety, endeavoured to restore order in the assembly. Raymond expressed himself delighted to see him, declaring that he should make one in the festivity of the night. This action of Adrian provoked me. I was indignant that he should sit at the same table with the companions of Raymond, men of abandoned characters, or rather without any, the refuse of high-bred luxury, the disgrace of their country. Let me entreat, Adrian, I cried, not to comply. Rather join with me in endeavouring to withdraw Lord Raymond from this scene, and restore him to other society. My good fellow, said Raymond, this is neither the time nor place for the delivery of a moral lecture. Take my word for it that my amusements and society are not so bad as you imagine. We are neither hypocrites or fools. For the rest, dost thou think, because thou art virtuous, there shall be no more cakes and ale? I turned angrily away. Verney, said Adrian, you are very cynical. Sit down. Or if you will not, perhaps, as you are not a frequent visitor, Lord Raymond will humour you, and accompany us, as we had previously agreed upon, to Parliament. Raymond looked keenly at him. He could read benignity only in his gentle lineaments. He turned to me, observing with scorn my moody and stern demeanour. Come, said Adrian, I have promised for you. Enable me to keep my engagement. Come with us. Raymond made an uneasy movement, and laconically replied, I won't. The party in the meantime had broken up. They looked at the pictures, strolled into the other apartments, talked of billiards, and one by one vanished. Raymond strode angrily up and down the room. I stood ready to receive and reply to his reproaches. Adrian leaned against the wall. This is infinitely ridiculous, he cried. If you were schoolboys you could not conduct yourselves more unreasonably. You do not understand, said Raymond. This is only part of a system, a scheme of tyranny to which I will never submit. Because I am protector of England, am I to be the only slave in its empire? My privacy invaded, my actions censured, my friends insulted. But I will get rid of the whole together. Be you witnesses. And he took the star, insignia of office, from his breast, and threw it on the table. I renounce my office, I abdicate my power, assume it who will. Let him assume it, exclaimed Adrian, who can pronounce himself, or whom the world will pronounce to be your superior. There does not exist the man in England with adequate presumption. 
Know yourself, Raymond, and your indignation will cease, your complacency return. A few months ago, whenever we prayed for the prosperity of our country, of our own, we at the same time prayed for the life and welfare of the protector, as indissolubly linked to it. Your hours were devoted to our benefit. Your ambition was to obtain our commendation. You decorated our towns with edifices. You bestowed on us useful establishments. You gifted the soil with abundant fertility. The powerful and unjust cowered at the steps of your judgment seat, and the poor and oppressed arose like morn-awakened flowers under the sunshine of your protection. Can you wonder that we are all aghast and mourn when this appears changed? But come, this splenetic fit is already past. Resume your functions. Your partisans will hail you. Your enemies will be silenced. Our love, honour and duty will again be manifested towards you. Master yourself, Raymond, and the world is subject to you. All this would be very good sense if addressed to another, replied Raymond moodily. Con the lesson yourself and you, the first peer of the land, may become its sovereign. You, the good, the wise, the just, may rule all hearts. But I perceive, too soon for my own happiness, too late for England's good, that I undertook a task to which I am unequal. I cannot rule myself. My passions are my masters, my smallest impulse my tyrant. Do you think that I renounce the protectorate, and I have renounced it, in a fit of spleen? By the God that lives, I swear never to take up that bauble again, never again to burthen myself with the weight of care and misery, of which that is the visible sign. Once I desired to be a king. It was in the heyday of youth, in the pride of boyish folly. I knew myself when I renounced it. I renounced it to gain, no matter what, for that also I have lost. For many months I have submitted to this mock majesty, this solemn jest. I am its dupe no longer. I will be free. I have lost that which adorned and dignified my life, that which linked me to other men. Again I am a solitary man, and I will become again, as in my early years, a wanderer, a soldier of fortune. My friends, for Verney, I feel that you are my friend. Do not endeavour to shake my resolve. Perdita, wedded to an imagination, careless of what is behind the veil, whose charactery is in truth faulty and vile. Perdita has renounced me. With her it was pretty enough to play a sovereign's part, and, as in the recesses of your beloved forest, we acted masks, and imagined ourselves Arcadian shepherds, to please the fancy of the moment. So I was content, more for Perdita's sake than my own, to take on me the character of one of the great ones of the earth to lead her behind the scenes of grandeur, to vary her life with a short act of magnificence and power. This was to be the colour, love and confidence the substance of our existence. But we must live, and not act our lives. Pursuing the shadow, I lost the reality, and now I renounce both. Adrian, I am about to return to Greece, to become again a soldier, perhaps a conqueror. Will you accompany me? You will behold new scenes, see a new people. Witness the mighty struggle there going forward between civilization and barbarism. Behold, and perhaps direct the efforts of a young and vigorous population for liberty and order. Come with me. I have expected you. I waited for this moment. 
all is prepared. Will you accompany me? I will, replied Adrian. Immediately? Tomorrow, if you will. Reflect, I cried. Wherefore? asked Raymond. My dear fellow, I have done nothing else than reflect on this step the livelong summer, and be assured that Adrian has condensed an age of reflection into this little moment. Do not talk of reflection. From this moment I abjure it. This is my only happy moment during a long interval of time. I must go, Lionel, the gods will it, and I must. Do not endeavour to deprive me of my companion, the outcast's friend. One word more concerning unkind, unjust Perdita. For a time I thought that, by watching a complying moment, fostering the still warm ashes, I might relume in her the flame of love. It is more cold within her than a fire left by gypsies in winter-time, the spent embers crowned by a pyramid of snow. Then, in endeavouring to do violence to my own disposition, I made all worse than before. Still, I think, that time and even absence may restore her to me. Remember that I love her still, that my dearest hope is that she will again be mine. I know, though she does not, how false the veil is which she has spread over the reality. Do not endeavour to rend this deceptive covering, but by degrees withdraw it. Present her with a mirror in which she may know herself, and, when she is an adept in that necessary but difficult science, she will wonder at her present mistake, and hasten to restore to me what is by right mine, her forgiveness, her kind thoughts, her love. End of Volume 1, Chapter 9 Recording by Philippa Willett